Announcement time! I told you a few months ago that there are some very exciting reasons why I've been especially busy lately. Well, one such reason is that I'm coming out with Chess Queens, the true story of a chess champion and the greatest female players of all time. It's out in Europe in ebook in March 2022 and a couple months later stateside. Right now, pre-orders are my love language. And I'd really appreciate if you click on one of the links in the show notes to make sure you get the earliest copy of Chess Queens. You can also go to jennifershahadi.com slash books for those links. The Grid is a free show. And by supporting my work, you help this entire operation going. And speaking of which, with a big deadline behind me, I'll be upping the grid frequency. And today I have a special bonus episode. I originally recorded this for Ladies Night with Ella Popanek. She is a quant sports trader at Susquehanna International Group. I've previously had Bill Chen from SIG on the show. And Ella is working in the sports analytics division. She had a lot of really fascinating things to talk to me about chess, poker, sports. And I think what intrigued me most is this idea of not only getting better at games, but also making the games better and using the same skills that we bring to becoming champions and to becoming proficient to analyzing how to make things better. This is the future for games like poker and chess. So let's dig into it. Enjoy the show. Hello, Ella. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I understand that you learned to play poker recently. Tell us a little bit about the difference to you between learning chess and learning poker. Poker versus chess thing that I think about a lot is like probabilistic games versus deterministic games. And that's something like Jared and I were talking about, this idea that like you have really young children who are very good at chess, but not really, that's not the case in poker. Why is that? Is there something about like developmentally that people have to hit a certain age to be able to conceptualize like probabilistic concepts. Like I didn't get into chess that yet. Like I started when I was probably around 10, like not as young as some kids. And then obviously I didn't play poker when I was younger, so I don't know, but I think that's definitely like an interesting kind of difference between the games. And I think that does somewhat partition like the skill sets of there's some people whose skill set is much more compatible with one of those kind of directions of thinking. I think somebody should do research on like why young children are able to excel at chess and not at poker. Well, part of it is just because a lot of people don't want to teach their kids poker and then they're not, they're not allowed to play in like the serious competitions. You have to wait till they're 20. Yeah. But even like if they were playing with like fake money, uh-huh. I personally don't know this, but Jared has told me that like there are not kids who are capable of playing poker well. Do you think that part of it is that thinking probabilistically benefits from like living in the world for a while and like seeing the weather change and disappointments and like noticing how some of them are luck oriented, whereas in chess, it's like this closed system that you don't really need that life experience to bolster your belief in the math? Yeah, I definitely think that humans are more like predisposed to think deterministically than probabilistically. Like I think it's it's a harder way of thinking even for people who have lived in the world for a long time and observed a a lot of events like in football that was a common thing like I worked briefly with the Browns and like their analytics department and that was something we would always deal with it's like trying to explain to like coaching staff that they can make the right decision and have the wrong result and they can make the right wrong decision and have the right result and trying to get them to think less in an outcome biased framework um, because that's something you see in the NFL all the time like 
somebody goes for it on fourth down and they miss. And then the media is like, oh, going for it on fourth down is the, the crazy analytics people. They all tell us to go for it on fourth down and they're always wrong. It's like, no, it can be the correct decision, but it just didn't work this time. But if you do it in aggregate in many times, it will give you like positive expected value, positive win probability. I think just that framework of, of like not being outcome biased is a difficult mindset to kind of like work your way into. And so chess doesn't require that at all. Like there's not really that element of all of the move sequences are at least somewhat deterministic. Like you can feel confident in doing a certain move if you see all of the potential like trees that your pads you could go down in the tree lead to a positive result. Whereas in poker, it's like, okay, you're going to do some decision, then some something out of your control is going to happen. And then you're going to observe a result, but you can't really know what that result's going to be beforehand. It's definitely like hard to reach a conclusion on that, but I would love to see if people do research on it. I mean, it's a really hot topic in poker for sure. Books by Annie Duke, by Maria Konnikova, and a lot of work from Poker Power, this organization I just joined the board of, is about like these life skills in poker and how, how important it is to understand that you can make good decisions in life and have bad outcomes and vice versa. And I do think poker has really helped me with that as well, like in concrete ways. I mean, during the pandemic, for sure, it's easy to see how little control we have over things. And that if you, you know, are happy with the decisions that you're making, getting vaccinated and being safe, for instance, but and then somehow you get really unlucky and have a bad outcome. I think that because of my experience in poker and thinking about these things, I think that would be like easier for me to accept. So yeah, it can really help you with some very difficult life events, I'd say. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. So I'm really um, interested in this research you were doing a couple years back at Harvard on gender and chess. Um, what were your conclusions and did they match your hypothesis? Uh, yeah, so I've been thinking about this issue for a while of gender and chess because you definitely see this in the rating system, just so much fewer women in the higher ratings, something that I would experience even just playing tournaments that I would often be the only girl in many of the tournaments that I participated in. And it is something that's very difficult to pin down statistically uh, what the reason is because there are so many different interaction effects and it's very hard to get a sufficient sample size of both girls and boys who are exposed to chess at the same age in the same environment with the same socioeconomic status and same external exposure to other activities and same home environment and all of those things. And so it pretty much came out to be inconclusive. It is a very difficult problem to pin down statistically just because of sample size issues. Basically, what I did find is that the distribution of ratings of female chess players is significantly narrower than the distribution of ratings of male chess players, meaning that there's just lower variance. You talked about interaction effects. What does that mean? You could have two variables in an equation that both create some effects on your outcome variable, but potentially there's also another variable that is multiplied version of those two variables that adds an additional effect. I'm trying to think of like a a good example where you could say like, if you're talking about somebody's maybe height and weight and how that leads to their probability of being like a successful athlete. And maybe you could say, oh, for every inch taller that they get, we have some increase in the probability of them being a successful athlete. 
And also for every additional pound, we have an increase, but then potentially you could have a third variable that is the multiplied version of those two that adds like an additional bonus in your output variable, which would be the probability that they're going to be a successful athlete. So that kind of is a common issue when you're dealing with individuals and then trying to predict outcomes where you have individuals who have so many different attributes themselves. And those attributes don't each contribute to the outcome in an isolated way, but rather there's a lot of interplay between those attributes. So is this similar to the common problem of correlation versus causation? Uh, in some ways, yeah. Like uh, correlated variables can, can often ha- uh, create interaction effects. Understood. So it's very difficult because you have a small sample size. And I have also um, looked into some research with gender and chess, and particularly you have a very small sample size at the adult level. And then at the underage level, at the uh, minor level, um, a lot of times you're a little restricted by different ethical issues. So that makes it even more difficult, right? When you're, you're not even dealing with like the 10 to 20% at the youth level, you're like 5% the adult. Very difficult for sure. Um, although you were looking at data sets that did include young players, I think, right? Yes. It wasn't like you were doing an experiment or something where you can sometimes have restrictions based on age. You were looking at data. Yes, correct. And you had some issues due to sample size, but you did notice greater variance among the male distribution. And I understand because I've seen a couple of people write about that. And it seems like they argue that that's because there are more men so that there's going to be more variance. I mean, obviously you control for that. Like a simple way to think about that and to basically say whether or not the variance is a result of sample size is to say we have X number of female chess players and then we have Y number of male chess players. If we were to draw a sample of size X from the Y male chess players, how does the variance of that distribution compare to the variance of the true distribution of female chess players? And if it is still wider, then we can say with certainty that there's some other feature that is making the uh, distribution of female chess players have lower variance. Got it. So you controlled for that and still felt there was, you're still shown that there is more variance, although you did have a small sample size. Now, it's really interesting to me because I am interested in in this work, but I noticed that a lot of times when this type of work hits the uh, the mainstream or the press, it often gets really abused in the process. And one thing that you often hear is people say that like, okay, well, women's brains are different. So therefore, like they're going to be less variable and they're less likely to become very, very good. But actually, that isn't indicated by what you said, because you haven't made any point about whether the variation is based on culture or biology, right? Yeah. So I don't have any kind of explanatory hypothesis that I particularly believe in. And I Mm -hmm. would love to hear various ones that people have. But yeah, so far, I have not yet found a convincing argument um, for why we observe these distributional differences. Right. So it's a, it's a statement of what it looks like, not an explanation for it. I think that's really important. And, you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, teaching young people more about statistics, because I think that it's so important when a lot of these arguments hit the press or the mainstream, they get distorted and you really need to be able to understand how to parse it yourself. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think statistics is a great tool for you know understanding the world around us. And I think there's a lot of misuse of statistics in the media. And so just anything we can do to combat that is worthwhile. 
but of course not everybody is a mathematician or a statistician. So there needs to be like ways to kind of like break it down so that you're not getting such a dumbed down version that it's pointless, but you're also not, you know, spending your life on it. Right. So what kind of tools are best for that? I think a big part of statistics that a lot of people like don't really consider when they think of the field of statistics is communication. Um, so thinking about how to best or most effectively communicate the results that we're observing, whether it's like through coming up with analogies or vis- data visualizations, um, how to express those findings to the people that will end up needing to use them. I mean, a lot of statistics is like to find out research for various fields and then the experts in those fields will actually react to the results found by the statisticians. And so I think it's very important that the people who are taking action based on the results are equipped to understand those results. Right. Art meets math. So beautiful infographics can help uh, every person understand these things. I love that. In my book, Chess Queens, I wrote about this idea of greater distribution and variance in male players and how when I was a kid at a chess camp, before I became a good player, there was somebody who came and showed me these statistics and it was really demoralizing because they were kind of trying to prove why women couldn't be as good at men at chess. I was really upset by it. And I believe my brother was in the class too. And he probably remembers even more from it because he's older than me. And that unfortunately, if these statistics are poorly presented, they can actually have a discouraging effect on people, right? And um, that's something that uh, this great book, Inferior by Angela Saini, um, goes into depth about as well. I was not exposed to those statistics at a young age and just played chess very much because I enjoyed the game and I had very little awareness of like what the overall demographics were of people who played and potentially that was a positive thing. Yeah, that can be useful to know something about math and statistics before you're exposed to um, things that could be discouraging, really interesting. So anyway, you were working on this research about gender and chess and distribution, but you also were talking about win percentage. That was something you also did at Harvard. Can you tell me more about what that, what does that mean? Yeah, so I wrote my senior thesis on win probability models in chess. So in sports, we have this idea of win probability as uh, something that we can track throughout the game. And at any point in the game, either team has some win probability that is defined and People could potentially make bets based on that win probability or coaches could make decisions based on that win probability. And so it's just a, like an interesting metric that we track. And you could, you could argue that like a good game or a game that's very exciting would have a lot of swings in win probability. So one team gets really close to winning and, another, and then another team makes a comeback. And so I wanted to try and reconstruct this same idea in chess. If you have a chess match, could there be some value that you could tune into and say, oh, we're watching the world championship. Oh, look, Magnus has a 53% chance of winning this game. And then say, oh, now he just made a good move. Now he has a 58% chance of winning this game. And so we have this idea of evaluation in chess. Um, you can like check the computer evaluation of a position, which gets us part of the way there to win probability. But evaluation kind of operates on an idealized sense of the world that these players are going to continue and make perfect moves for the rest of the game. And so it's very clear that that's not how players actually play. There's a lot of other factors that are involved in one probability in a game. So potentially how much time somebody has remaining on the clock could matter. And so I wanted to think of a way to kind of synthesize all of these features that we know about a game, which could be the player's ratings, the amount of time they have on the clock, the actual position on the board, but it could also be tendencies that these players have. So potentially a player is 
strong or weak under time pressure, or maybe a certain player is more tactical and other players more positional. And so I built a model to track this throughout the game and it takes into account all these different factors and then outputs a win probability chart, which you can basically look at over the course of the game, the progression of, of the trajectory of the game. You can see whether games were won through a blunder that would, would correspond to like a very dramatic drop in win probability on the graph. Or you could say, oh, maybe somebody just gradually outplayed someone positionally. That might look more like a gradual accumulation of win probability. And so I think it's a very interesting statistic to look at both to understand like stylistic differences in players, um, but also from the idea of like if there were ever to be like liquid in-game chess betting markets that like bookmakers would use something like that. That's interesting. So looking at more of all these dynamic factors, not just the evaluation of the position, but also trends and the clock, the type of position. That's really interesting. And you know, something you said at the beginning really interested me as well about like the volatility of a game to have like a metric for you know, what was the most exciting world chess championship game? Of course, very old ones, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that like a lot of chess players are very tied to eval as mm-hmm. as a metric. But if you think about maybe you have a position where white is plus two and it's a 2600 playing a 2600, that's very different in win probability than a position where white is plus two and it's a 1000 playing a 1000. And you got part of the way there with um, alpha zero using percentage evaluations, right? Yeah. But that still assumes perfect play. Yeah. It assumes like an equilibrium play that they're playing the best moves possible within the, within the uh, parameters of the fact that they haven't solved the game. So alpha zero, for those who um, haven't read the book Game Changer or read a little bit about it or Leela, the way it works is instead of giving you like a number of pawns or a fraction of pawns that you're up in each position, it gives you a percentage chance that there will be a win, loss, or draw, which sounds a lot more what you're talking about. But again, you're also incorporating the idea of imperfect play based on rating and um, clock as well. Yeah. I think clock is like a huge factor where you could have somebody who's winning, but they might not have enough time to actually let that advantage materialize into a win. And then it's very interesting because you could train somebody against that AI and say like, well, what's the best move here considering that your opponent has three minutes on the clock? versus whether they have like 40 minutes. Yeah, that's definitely something I've been thinking about more after writing that thesis uh, is these kind of decisions that I make in my own games and the trade-offs that I have to consider and how those might differ from just in a pure sense, looking at a position and saying, I'm going to determine the best move in this position. Like I think there are a lot of times where I could say a move that is not objectively the best move is better for me to play in this position because of various time constraints that my opponent is under or potentially all I'll be causing them to have to evaluate very long lines and that has value to me in that circumstance. The trade-offs between time, calculation, like positional advantages, various types of positions. So even like if, if I have awareness of what types of positions my opponent is comfortable in or what types of positions I'm comfortable in, knowing kind of which of those exchanges I, I want to partake in. Like maybe I'm willing to give up some time to get a position that I'm more comfortable playing in. So all of those kinds of decisions are something that I'm a lot more aware of now after having researched this in depth. Isn't it really fascinating how more math and more AI creates more psychology? Because everybody would kind of expect the opposite. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. 
as a poker player, as well as a chess player, it's, it's fascinating to me because when you hear people like Fabiano Caruana or Magnus Carlsen talk, sometimes they do speak in this way now that has all of these psychological and probabilistic factors. Uh, and yes, if you unpack it, it makes sense why, but it's also just, just so funny that it, it, it be, it becomes, uh, so precise that you're forced to become less precise. Yeah, no, I mean, I think a lot of people think of chess as just like game of infinite calculation, but when you actually are, you know, experiencing playing it, there definitely are a lot of psychological elements and factors that are worth considering that maybe might not adhere to like the pure rigid calculating framework that engines evaluate chess in, like are productive in human versus human matches. Do you play any other games like poker, word games? Uh, I recently learned poker since coming to SIG. So there's a very big poker playing culture at SIG. Um, and it's like part of our education. We have poker class once a week. So I've taken up poker since that. But before, I pretty much exclusively played chess. How was your experience in learning poker? Did you catch on quickly because you're so invested in statistics? Or were there any kind of like just habits that you have that were really difficult to break through? I think it's taught in a very game theoretic probabilistic way at SIG. And so I think that came very intuitively to me because that's the mindset that I'm used to thinking in is kind of reactionarily thinking about what my opponents are thinking. And that's a feature of chess, of course. And so I would say came pretty naturally to me through that, but it's definitely a very complicated game. By no means have I mastered it. We pretty much exclusively play seven card stud. And so obviously like a less common version of poker. So I think I have less exposure to or like mainstream poker that, that most people play. Um, but yeah, no, I've, I've enjoyed playing it so far and definitely intend to like continue playing it even after sort of our, our poker education can, concludes. And what's your favorite hand? My favorite hand? Well, we play stud high, but I mean, <laughs> any hand that's winning. I <laughs> love it. Love it. So if you were hired by a world championship team, let's say, um, to help with the match with sports analytics applied to chess? Like, what would your approach be? So I would say in, in sports analytics, we have two kind of schools of thought. One of which is surrounds, we have rules, the way the game works. How do we optimize to like increase our own win probability? And then the second one is how do we want the game to look? Like, how can we make the quality of the game better? What are the rules that, could potentially be changed. And so along the lines of making the game better, something that Jared and I have talked about is the idea of playing the tiebreakers before the original match uh, in the chess world championship. So if players went into the long games knowing who had the edge in the blitz tiebreaker, I think that would be very interesting and it would definitely impact kind of the decisions that people make and then the way that they play. I would say along the lines of actually optimizing an individual player's win probability, I, I would think a lot of the trade-offs that we talked about earlier would be very important. So probably like world championship level chess players spend the majority of their time focusing on how to find the best move. Like this is the most simple unit of what a chess game is made up of is decision points at which each of which you're trying to make the best move. And in some of those decision points, players could potentially benefit from thinking about other trade-offs. So maybe you have 10 minutes on the clock and you know that you will definitely be able to find the best move if you spend five minutes. But 
maybe the second best move is only 0.1 worse than the best move. And so it, maybe you can find that in two minutes. And those, that three minute difference might be worth more in a future move than that 0.1 eval difference. And so I think getting players to understand those trade-offs would be a big factor in coaching. And I think approaching it from a more human perspective, like saying there are errors that we expect your opponent to make and you to make, and people aren't going to be able to calculate at the level that computers can. And so how should you change your game to reflect that rather than trying to mimic the behavior of the computer? Sounds like that would be incredibly valuable for it's for so many chess players, not just the the strongest. I mean, I think this framework of thinking about chess is fantastic. And I also love what you said about you and Jared. Jared is a friend of mine, by the way. He and you were speaking about this, uh, having the tie break at the beginning. My brother is also a fan of that idea. Greg Shahadi, shout out to him. Um, I love what you say about using sports analytics to make the game better rather than just making people good at the game. Is that something that you're invested in? Is it more of like a, a theoretical thing? Yeah. So the NFL actually does have a annual contest called the Big Data Bowl, where NFL director of analytics, his name is Mike Lopez, releases a really big data set, which is called player tracking data. And it's the basically like XY coordinates of every player on the field throughout the plays and throughout a bunch of games. So they have GPS tracking devices in their shoulder pads that you can follow exactly their movements and the movement of the ball and can kind of animate these plays and perform statistical analysis on them. And so some of the questions that they, when they release this data that they ask to people participating in this competition are, what are rule changes that you would propose? And you could have rule changes that you'd propose to make the game safer, for example. So like in football, it's known that like kickoffs are a very dangerous play of the game, like a much higher percentage of injuries occur on kickoffs than on any other individual play. And so that's like everyone kind of knows that's a problem with the NFL. And so alternative proposals to kickoff. So like, is there something else we could have teams do that would replace the kickoff, uh, but still like keep the game exciting, keep it interesting and not significantly alter like the incentives or the probabilities within the game. So that's one way that you could imagine sort of a rule change in the NFL. There have also been proposals in the NBA around like the idea of creating like a four point line. and a lot of times when you have a sport and there there has to be some kind of equilibrium of behavior, then introducing like a new feature could change that equilibrium and inject excitement into the game. And so like, I know one rule change that Daryl Morey is a big fan of is the Elam ending. So in basketball, the idea that you have to hit a certain score rather than just as soon as time expires, uh, which team has the greater score, but who is the first to a specific score. So all kinds of things like those, I think leagues are more open to than people would expect. I guess another one is like in the NFL, improving fairness would be a great thing. So in overtime, there's a lot of debates about fairness in overtime because what happens is you flip a coin and some somebody wins the coin toss and then gets to choose whether to kick or receive. And almost every time in overtime, the person, the team that wins the coin toss chooses to receive and has a higher chance of winning that overtime than the team that lost the coin toss. And so my dream proposal for that is having like an auction where the team that is willing to take the ball on a deeper yard line or yard line closer to their end zone gets the ball. So you could have like the coaches, you could, oh, they could dramatize it. I mean, I think the NFL would love this. Like you have 
coaches standing at each other's 49, the 49 yard lines. And then they say, take a step back. Okay. 48 yard lines. We'll both take it, take a step back. And at some point you, they, they get near the 15 and maybe somebody is willing to take it at their own 15. And the other team actually would rather play defense in that situation than take it at their own 15. Those kinds of proposals are things that I think are very exciting in sports. And I think that there definitely is some opposition because people are familiar with the way that sports have been for years, but they definitely have the potential to make the games like more exciting and more interesting and like a, a new strategic element that didn't previously exist. Well, I love your passion for that. And you mentioned Daryl Morey. He's also a big chess player. Yeah, I one time played him on chess.com. <laughs> How'd you know it was him? We were in actually a Bitcoin chat together on Telegram called BTC Nation. And so I reached out to him to see if he would talk at our sports. We had a sports analytics group at Harvard. And so we got connected through that. And so I friended him on chess.com. Well, um, apparently he's pretty good at bug house. So might, might have to get a, a game in Philly together. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> he is the president of the, of the Sixers now, um, having previously worked yeah. famously for the Houston Rockets. Now, you mentioned some, something else interesting. You, well, you mentioned a lot of interesting things there. But one thing that I, I really like is that you have this uh, tendency, it seems, to front load the drama, right? So to maybe move some of the drama from the end of the game to the start of the game, like with the tiebreaker or the auction, which I think is super interesting. And, you know, Greg and I once devised a tiebreak system for a chess playoff where there was only time for one game. And so, of course, that's an issue in chess, right? Because somebody has to get the white piece, and so somebody has to get the black pieces. Yeah. So similarly, there was like an auction to see how many minutes black was willing to take in order to get those draw odds. So it was like an auction Armageddon game, which was really interesting. I think we ended up having like three or four of them, but it was interesting to see like the convergence that like people would just kind of figure out, even without analyzing or thinking about it that much. Because one thing about great chess players is they don't really usually seem to read the tiebreak rules. <laughs> until they're in a tie break. <laughs> yeah. But of course, they still seem to, to reach some kind of like optimal or equilibrium point really quickly. But I, I have to say, though, I feel like some of those front loaded drama ideas, it seems like not everybody likes them. They have like a more traditional view that it should always be like the end that is like the dramatic competitive part. Yeah, well, I definitely think from sort of like sports industry mindset, like broadcasters benefit from having everybody watch until the end. Right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And, and having something that's kind of like um, really exciting, but might some people might find gimmicky Yeah, if you miss that. Yeah. And, and I think it's just traditionalism as well. But I'm really happy to hear about that because it seems on the face of it to be something like, well, if you were a company that makes um, profits by analyzing who's going to win and how they're going to win um, more than the other companies or other betters. How does like making the game better help you? But I guess the idea is it like helps the whole industry and keeps people excited, which uh, is a really encouraging trend, I'd say. I think it's fun when things are out of equilibrium. Like in basketball, it is optimal to shoot more threes and people have kind of realized that. And if you look at basketball over the last 20 years, like you can see there's a dramatic shift towards shooting more threes. And then if we say, okay, now we're in a state of the world where people kind of realize that, how could we sort of re-inject excitement into the game in a way where things fall out of equilibrium. And that could be including a four-point line or changing the value of the three-point line or anything like that. I think it's all about kind of having a state that you're in. And when you reach this equilibrium, thinking about how can you kind of like change that to make it more exciting um, or, or where do you reach a new equilibrium and which teams are going to reach it 
or kind of realize the ideal strategy most quickly. And that that's, in my opinion, like how you should be able to identify winners. Like when you, when the game changes in a way that mm-hmm. was unexpected, a way that people haven't yet kind of realized was the optimal strategy or haven't settled on anything that the teams that can most quickly and optimally take advantage of that, like should be rewarded for their ability to do so. But it's a different type of skill, right? It's like the brains versus strength and consistency, one might say. And I, I kind of see similar things in poker as well. Whereas if you like switch up the rules of the traditional no limit hold'em, it creates some like bounty or moving the button or win the button that different types of people benefit from that. Yeah. It's not necessarily smarter, but certainly smarter in a different type of way. Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of the idea of like Fisher random and chess, like there's no kind of preparation that can make you better at it. It's just like understanding the way that these pieces operate together and being comfortable using them in unusual ways that makes somebody good at that. There's different types of uh, players that just seem to excel at that more quickly. It's very inspiring. Um, how did you end up at, at SIG, by the way? It's Susquehanna International Group. I first encountered SIG at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in 2019, which is Daryl Morey and Jess Gelman's uh, conference. And SIG had a booth there and I, I was walking by the table and somebody at the booth complimented my backpack and I said, thank you. And I kept walking. And then she said, Hey, no, you're supposed to come over here after I compliment your backpack. And so I came over and started talking to them and they mentioned that they were having an event that night. And so I went that night and met a bunch of uh, the team that I currently work with. And I thought what they were doing was super, super interesting. We talked a lot about sports betting markets and prediction markets in general, which a lot of people on my team are very interested in. And that was something at the time that I had just gotten into and was very excited about. That was, I guess, my sophomore year of college. And then I interned at SIG my junior summer and was working on the sports side of things. Also got a lot of exposure to options, pricing, a little bit of exposure to poker, uh, a lot of exposure to forecasting. And so I really enjoyed all of these various things that I had my hands in while interning at SIG. And I decided to come back full-time after that. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And the sports analytics conference, the MIT sports analytics conference um, run by Jessica Gelman and Daryl Morey. I actually spoke at that last year online um, during the pandemic. Um, It was with uh, Hikaru Nakamura, Robert Hess, and and Daryl Morey, and Danny Ranch. I believe I saw you in the chat for that uh, that session as well. Yeah, I was I was there. Yeah, and then uh, uh, this year it's it's in person in a couple months, right? Are you, are you going to go to that? I'm not sure yet. I would like to. <laughs> It'll depend on if Sig makes a trip. Right. Everything is always up in the air these days, huh? Uh, yeah. You, you got you got to roll with the punches. Yeah. Um, but you are involved with Sig and their North American Corporate Chess League, so you are actively playing chess at Sig. Who is the best chess player right now at Sig? Oh, I don't know actually. We had a lot of strong players that left recently, but we still have been doing well, I would say, in in the Corporate Chess League. I think we got second this past season, which was solid performance. I think we had a first and a third, so I guess the second was was what we needed. But yeah, we have a lot of active chess players. We play in these events online. SIG usually sends a team to Amateur Team East, um, and we also have a group of us that get together once a week after work and play in person together. And so that's been super nice just to meet people who play. A lot of people on my team play. So I have my daily games on chess.com going with various people on the team. Chess is big at SIG, but even just like games overall, there's 
there's like a community of people who play that game. Is Wordle too easy for people at SIG? I feel like you guys are... I don't know about it, but I do, I am aware of a large group of people who are into it. They're working out the app strategy, I'm sure. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so um, are you a fan of Philly sports now that you've been here for, I don't know, how many months, six months? Or do you have to remain neutral for this gig at SIG? I am born a Giants fan, which I don't like to market around here, but I am... I've decided to embrace the Sixers as a Daryl Morey fan. So I was never like a super big New York basketball basketball fan. So I think I can be a Sixers fan, very much admire what Daryl Morey has done in basketball and just for the sports analytics world in general. So I can say I'm a Sixers fan. I can't betray my Giants to be an Eagles fan. So I, I think I'm sticking with the Giants. All right. Well, not yet. Maybe, you know, we'll see how long you can last in that <laughs> attitude. Uh, well, I don't, I don't wear my Giants gear around. I used to wear it in college in Patriots territory and I would like get people yelling at me and like, throwing trash. I don't think I'm going to do that in Eagles territory. Well, it's been a really an amazing time talking to you on ladies night. I, I really appreciate it. And, and to, of course, for, for SIG, for helping set up this interview, Susquehanna International Group. You can find all about them. I'll put that link in the show notes. And Ella, we can follow you on Twitter, right? Yes. Is there any other social media networks we should we should follow your I mostly use Twitter. Yeah, I'm Checks Matrix on Twitter. Guess, that's the main one I use, I would say. And what's Check Matrix mean? So uh, my original my username on most platforms is Check Matrix, which is like Checkmate and Matrix, which is slight allusion to statistics. Uh, but that was taken on Twitter. So I had to do Checks Matrix. And that is just because I like Checks Mix. All right. There you go. Yeah, I got it. Checks. Checks. Not that deep. Yeah. C-H-E-X Matrix on Twitter. Um, Follow her and Susquehanna International Group. Go check them out. Sounds like a great place to intern slash work for. I've got a lot of good friends there. I can attest to some some good people there. And we have a big thank you to them as well for sponsoring the Pan American Championships. Ella, thank you so much for coming on Ladies Night. It's been amazing. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got time.